So did you notice as John was reading Haggai, the part where he said that you put clothes on, but you do not stay warm? Did, could you relate? So for the last couple months, we've been looking at themes within this group of books known as the Minor Prophets. And this is our last week in this series, because next week is called Christ the King Sunday. And we will be focusing on Christ as the reigning king over the world. And then the Sunday after that, we begin the season of Advent, which is when we look forward to Christ's arrival at Christmas. Now, just a quick note on this. So Christ the King Sunday and Advent are paired together very intentionally in our church calendar. The reason for this is that we would grow in holding together the weakness and strength dynamic within our faith. So in terms of strength, Christ is king over the world. He reigns as king now. He reigns in power. But in the season of Advent, we remember that Christ first came in weakness. He arrived in the world as an infant child, and yet, at the same time, a powerful Savior. And this is not a one-off dynamic within our faith. It's an ongoing tension that we live out now. God continues to use the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He uses the cross, which is a powerful tool of death for those who wield it, yet a symbol of weakness for those who bear it. He uses the cross powerfully to bring redemption and love into the lives of the weak people like us. He becomes strong in our weakness and in our humility. When we are willing to submit our weaknesses and our frailty to Christ, He fills them with His mysterious strength. So this is where we're headed as a church next week and through Christmas, to consider God's power in the midst of weakness and through weakness. So now back to the present. That was a mini-sermon within a sermon. This morning we're looking at the, a theme of generosity within the Minor Prophets. Our main passage comes from the book of Haggai, as John read to us. We'll use also a passage from Malachi uh, later in the sermon this morning. Haggai was a prophet in 520 B.C. Now, all the prophets that we've considered up until now were prior to Haggai's time. Haggai is what you would call a post-exilic prophet. Post-exilic prophet. So the southern part of Israel, called Judah, had been exiled to Babylon in the year 586-587 B.C. Their ongoing disobedience to God, despite lots of warnings, so some of the other prophets make up the warnings to Judah, if you don't change your ways, you're going to go to Babylon. Well, that happens. Their ongoing disobedience made them more vulnerable to their enemies, and so Babylon defeated them. They looted the land, and they took them into exile. But what goes around comes around, right? And so Babylon was then defeated by the nation of Persia. And the king of Persia, Cyrus, created this really merciful edict. That he decided that 
those who were foreigners in the land of Babylon, if they desired, could go back to their homeland. And so there were Israelites who decided to go back to Israel. There were some who decided not to, and so this is why you get in the New Testament this dispersion of Jews all across the world, the known world at that time, because there were some who had been there so long, had had children there, grandchildren, they decided, uh, we've made a home here, why don't we just stay? But there, were, there was a large group that returned to Israel. Now here's something important to keep in mind as we're listening to the book of Haggai this morning. From what we can tell, these who have returned to Israel are very loyal Israelites. They are salt-of-the-earth Israelites. They want to be here, and they actually want to follow God. And this is sort of unique among the minor prophets. So there are lots of other places in the minor prophets where it is clear we're dealing with people who are living in all-out rebellion to God. No holds barred. They are rebelling against God in every way possible. The whole tone in some of the minor prophets is indicative of this. The warnings in those prophets, like uh, Amos, they're dire. If people don't change, there will be a swift and extensive judgment. It's not quite that way in Haggai. That's not the tone. Yes, there is this area where they need to make a correction. But the threat, if they don't course correct, is not that they're going to be annihilated. It's not quite that extreme. And in some ways, this is much more reminiscent to me of our culture, especially here in the valley. I, I think Haggai is a wonderful book for us as a church. The threat in Haggai is that the people, if the people do not obey God, they're going to go on in this cycle of living dissatisfied lives. It's not annihilation. But it's dissatisfaction. They keep spinning their wheels, but they're never fully satisfied with God, content with their lives. So this is how Haggai describes the people he speaks to. Consider your lives. You sow much, but you harvest little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. He's describing the cycle that a lot of us live in today. We spin our wheel, wheels, we work hard for ourselves, possibly for our families, we go, 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 but it's as if you can never completely get full. So just to reinforce the point again, though, these people were not about bad things. I like what one person said about them. They were the right people in the right place with the right motives. They move back to their homeland, and the land is in disarray. And so they do what any of us would do. If you bought an old homestead that had been abandoned, what would you do? You would give yourself to working on it day after day, trying to put it into right order. And this is what the people do in Haggai. They needed to reestablish their homes. Schools, shops, commerce, trade, all the things that go along with a stable life. So that's what they've been doing. And God isn't specifically angry at those things. There was only one problem. They put all of those things ahead of worship and service to God. 
They put all of those good things ahead of worship and service to God. So here's the first point I want to make this morning from Haggai. This is an area that God calls on you to be generous to him. He calls you to give him your time. And this is very specific. Your time in a specific way. So for Jews, this looked like, and it still does look like, the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not a day in which you had permission just be lazy. It was a day for formal worship and service to God. And it was richly symbolic of the fact that all of your time really belongs to God. You begin your work week punctuated with worship and service to God as a reminder that it all actually belongs to God. Now, what does this look like for us? How do we give our time to God in specific ways? Well, we're living on the heels of a time when Christianity grew dramatically in our country and in our culture. And with it, grew very formal ways of practicing faith. So weekly church attendance, often midweek Bible studies. I I don't know if you've ever heard this. I grew up hearing people described in this way. Uh, The most respectable people in the community where I grew up in, people would say about them, they are in the church every time the doors are open. You ever hear people described in this way? These were the most respected people within our community. They're in the church every time the doors are open. Now, I say this at the risk of sounding nostalgic, but for a long time, the wider culture around us supported this kind of life. The wider culture would not hold events on Sundays or Wednesdays because there was basically a gentleman's agreement that those days belong to the church, right? Now, this approach, the Sunday-Wednesday church routine, it gradually began to be viewed as too busy and overly rigid. Now, even if we didn't say this out loud, this was in the air. More recently, people have shifted toward less formal ways of engaging God. On the whole, even if people attend church on Sundays in our culture, they do it less frequently than prior generations. And look, I'm not trying to beat up on anything here. We just need to know the era in which we live so that we understand how we're living and don't accept it as a given. On the whole, even if people attend church on Sundays right now, They do it less frequently than prior generations. And the question can go something like this. You can worship anywhere, so why not do it on a sports field or in the woods rather than in an auditorium like this one where you're going to be a little bit cold anyway. These informal ways of worship can even seem more authentic for a lot of people. You're with friends, somewhere you want to be, and doing something that seems more productive than what people would say, think about what we're doing here. Now, again, this isn't an attempt to beat up on anyone, but it's simply to name a reality. In general, it is much harder for people to feel that a Sunday after Sunday commitment to formal worship is necessary now, much less desirable. 
And while a prior generation could feel like the broader culture supported, undergirded this kind of life, that's not the case anymore. And this doesn't mean that we need to blame culture and that we need to engage in some kind of culture war. What stories like Haggai tell us is that this is a generosity God calls us to. He calls us to offer him our time through formal worship and service. Now, I would say that he asked this of us. Notice I'm not saying that he asked this of us. It's closer to a command, the way a parent might ask something of a child when what we really mean is, if you don't do this, it's going to be bad for you. Sabbath is not an Old Testament phenomenon only. It is doubly reinforced with the resurrection of our Lord on the first day of the week. So if anything, the resurrection calls us to not let a Sunday go by in which we do not offer praise and prayer to God as he works redemption and resurrection within us and within the world. Now what does this mean? Does this mean you should never miss a Sunday in worship? If you do, does it mean that you should feel really guilty about it? No. But I think it does mean that it should be the exception to your life and not the rule to your life. Does it mean that we need to fight the culture to get back to a day when the stores were closed on Sunday and there were no sports games? I I actually don't think that's the answer either. Here, to me, is the question that matters. What would you say is the most important and powerful rhythm in your life from week to week? What is the most important and powerful rhythm in your life from week to week? And if you have children, what would your children say if you were to ask them, what's the most important rhythm in our family's life from week to week? What's the most important day in our family's life from week to week? Uh, By the way, their answer is probably more honest than yours is, right? Would worship hit the top of the list? Even the top three. This is what God desires, that all the other rhythms in your life, of all of them, worship and service to him would be the most important and the most powerful. And this is why our church is trying to use liturgy more and more within the whole rhythm of our life together. This is why uh, we're using a liturgy in our small groups, so that there'll be these repeated things that we say over and over, and they become part of our internal life. This is why we're doing an Advent Evensong, the Saturday night before Advent so that we learn to punctuate our lives, not just week after week, but within seasons, with worship. This is why uh, in the past year, for the first time, we had four services during Holy Week and Easter. You thought we had enough already, and we added one longer than all the others with the Easter vigil. Because we want the repeated rhythms of our worship to become the most powerful influence in your life. There were several of you who participated in all four of our uh, Holy Week Easter services who came up to me after saying, I never would have thought of doing that, and that was amazing. One way this has changed for our family 
is that if we're traveling on a Sunday or we miss uh, for another reason, kids are sick, whatever, we try to at least use a short liturgy as a way to pray, hear scripture and sing to God together. But these little forms for prayer are a great tool that the Anglican Church has produced to help all of us pray more. So a lot of you are new to liturgy. I've been new to liturgy in the last few years myself. And here's what I've learned. That these little structured ways of praying, they only become dead ritual if we let them become dead ritual. But most of the time, what they help us do is pray more and pray better. So if you want to hear about ways of using these kinds of things to punctuate your week, your days, please come ask me and I'd love to talk, tell you about them. So this is an area that God calls on you to be generous to him. He calls on you to give him your time in formal worship. Now, why does God call for us to do this? Why does God call on us to be generous to him? He's God. Why should we be generous to him? Here's one big reason. Because to be human is to be dependent. This is why I think, I think this is at the foundation of it. To be human is to be dependent. To be in need. It's to be dependent on God, and it is to be dependent on others. So the 2 Corinthians passage that Scott read to us is all about this offering that is being collected so that um, the wealthy people in Corinth can give to the poor Jews who are in Jerusalem. And it basically what's being expressed here as is to the people in Corinth, you are dependent on God. And in your dependence on God, you need to give generously to him. And in giving generously to God, he will give even more generously back to you. Our generosity to God expresses our dependence. So if you're generous to God with your time, you you come here, you spend time in worship. You do something that doesn't on the surface look like it's very productive. But this is a powerful expression of your dependence. You're just sitting. You're submitting to God and saying, God, I'm willing to trust you that you're going to do something in my life through this. I don't know what it is, but I'm willing to wait and to see. By worshiping in this formal way, rather than choosing your own way, so on that, the, the sports field or in the woods, you're submitting to something you don't always understand, but you trust that God will do something good for you in it. Something better than you can do for yourself and choosing your own way. Now, I mentioned earlier that we were also going to draw from the prophet Malachi. So in Malachi chapter 3, he speaks to the topic of generosity in tithing. So we've talked about it in terms of time, but Malachi speaks of it in terms of money. This is Malachi chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. This is another expression of dependence on God. Listen to Malachi. Bring the entire tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my temple. Test me in this matter, says the Lord who rules over all, to see if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until there is no room for it all. 
Then I will stop the plague from ruining your crops, and the vine will not lose its fruit before harvest, says the Lord, who rules over all. All nations will call you happy, for you indeed will live in a delightful land, says the Lord, who rules over all. (laughs) Now there's no doubt that passages like this have been used wrongly to try to force people into giving in ways that should not have been done. But it doesn't invalidate the larger point of this passage. Just as God calls us to be generous with time, he also calls us to be generous with money, to give it in a way that we don't understand. And whether it's with our money or with our time, God calls us to this generosity as an expression of our dependence on him. We give to him our time, our resources, and worship in faith that God will provide for us more richly than we can provide for ourselves. Here's the rule of Scripture. Through generosity, God enhances your life. It doesn't always mean physical wealth, though that is often the case. Even if it's not physical wealth, He'll enhance your life spiritually through contentment and joy. But here's the other side of it. Generosity enhances your life. Greed diminishes your life. Sometimes that's in terms of physical wealth. God withholds blessing that he could have given you if you were willing to be generous. But your life is also diminished in terms of discontentment and depression. You stay in a cycle, always needing more just to sustain a low-grade somewhat happiness but not really but if you would be willing to open your life generously God would give you joy so God does he calls on us to be generous to give ourselves to him in worship and service and why because we're dependent on him and in being generous we experience God's generosity in a greater way now we're we're close to the end So far, we've looked at this on a personal level. The the questions are, how is God calling you to be generous to him with your time and with your resources? Are you being faithful to him in generosity? Are, Are you willing to come to him in places like this, Sunday after Sunday, give of yourself and say, God, I trust that you're gonna give back to me. But there's an application to this on the congregational level too and we're going to close with that so the specific problem in Haggai's day was that in spite of all their work to rebuild this community that had been desolated they had yet to start building a set aside space to worship and serve God I didn't select this passage so I could talk about lamb and tell you hey You need to get on board with this and you need to start thinking about how you're going to build a set-aside space to worship and serve God. That's not why I decided on this passage. It's dangerous to use passages like this in that blanket kind of way. They said it then, therefore it means now do this. So instead I'm going to say, I think there's wisdom here for us, for where we are as a church. 
there are moments in history when God calls a group of people to sacrifice and work hard to build a place of worship and service, not only for themselves, but for generations and generations to come. And here in Haggai, God God warns the people against having plenty of money for themselves and their personal lives, but not enough to serve him. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses Why this house lies in ruins? God asked them. And then he tells the people through Haggai, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. I love that part. That I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Later, when the work begins to get very difficult and they're tempted to give up, God says, Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. I don't know what it looks like for God to lead Church of the Lamb toward a long-term home. But I do think it could be daunting. I do think it will require a great deal of faith and a great deal of hard work. A great deal of sacrifice of time and resources. And at the same time, I believe it's something that the Lord will take pleasure in and will be glorified by. I believe His Spirit remains in our midst and we will have no reason to fear. So, God calls on us as a people And as a body to be generous, to express our own dependence on him through the generous offerings of our time and our resources to him. But in return, God, through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the sacrifice of his own self for our sins and through the the giving of his spirit, is willing to be even more generous to us than we are to him. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.